Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right. We have with us Frank Buckley. He's been with us before. Uh, Frank is the foundation professor at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law. He's a frequent media guest, uh, commentator. On, on He's appeared on Morning Joe, CNN, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, we heard bad news about Rush uh, the other day. C-SPAN, NPR, and many other places. He had a book that he discussed with us about a year and a half ago called The Republican Workers' Party. And he has a new book out under the modest and unassuming title, American Secession. Welcome, Frank. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, the, the title, the, the word secession, uh, as you know, that word can't be said in the United States without it bringing to mind the Civil War and really the Confederacy in, in the Civil War. Uh, but for you, we're not talking about a metaphor. This is not about, oh, you know, we have cultural cultural backup. You're actually talking about an actual legal, political process that you think ought to be in the conversation, yes? Well, I'm uh, exactly right. Uh, and the book is a bit of a how-to guide. I mean, if you seriously think that we are very, very divided, uh, one of the things that has to come to mind is what do we do about it? And there are two alternatives. One is for one side to let its guard down and, and try to appreciate what's good about the other side. And the other is a breakup. And breakups have happened all over the world, right? It's almost no country that isn't staring down a secession movement. And why do we think we're exceptional? Uh, I mean, as you say, you know, we have the example of secession 1.0, civil war, it didn't turn out too well. But, uh, you know, even though we're, we're, we're glad that uh, it happened and slavery was eliminated, but uh, we don't like the idea of a war. And I, I, one of the things I wanted to say was, well, you know, that's really not on the cards. You know, what, what is more plausible is for listeners to buy stock in U-Haul. Mm-hmm. Well, when when you say secession, in in the book, you really do lay out a how-to guide and why it has to be put onto the the realm of possibilities, if only to open up our thinking about such things. And as you put it a moment ago, we're not going to have a civil war. We have a we, you know some people talk. Do you, do you think we have a cold civil war going on right now? As as uh, was it Angelo Cotavia said uh, in in the Claremont Review that people have been arguing that for a couple of years now. 
what would you call the culture war is is a form of cold civil war that that really is i mean that that may be unbridgeable well uh back in 1992 um irving crystal said the culture wars are over the left won, but what happened in 2016 was a wake-up call for the left uh in which they found that maybe they they didn't win after all and uh and what we're seeing what we've seen over the last three years is the rage of the left that is looking at itself in the mirror and doesn't like what it sees. It doesn't like the America it sees back looking at them. Um, you know, b- before you have a secession, you, you need two things. You need uh, the deep divisions, which we have today, as much, I think, as we had in 1860. And then you need one side that doesn't want to play by the rules. And that was the South in 1861. And frankly, today, it's the American left. So I I compare the American left to the South in the Civil War, right? Um, You know, one thing that made sense to me in all of this was I read James Buchanan's fourth State of the Union message to Congress. And what he was saying was, look, you know, things are great. Everything's, you know, happening our way. The harvests are plentiful. We're all rich. Uh, but you know, some people want to separate and I don't get it. Number one, no country better protects slavery, which was true. And number two, you don't have the right to secede. Well, what am I supposed to do? Am I, am I supposed to invade you guys? Uh, I don't, you know, it would take Abraham Lincoln to do that. So if, if we have, I mean, we have the same kind of constellation now. We have those deep divisions and we have the left, which immediately after 2016 bought into resistance and used every fabulous tale it could imagine of Russian interference and the like from one scandal to another, all designed to show that the 2016 election was not legitimate. So they're not playing by the rules any more than the South Carolinians were in 1861. And um, you put those two toxic things together and what you get is you know, the desire to break free of, of you know, what binds us together as, as a nation. And if that's where we are now, imagine where we'll be in a year from now, um, as I see it. Uh, impeachment will, of course, have fizzled. I expect Trump to be reelected. I think he'll have a couple more seats on the Supreme Court. Things we thought were uh, things we thought were cast in stone, like Roe v. Wade, will now be open to question. And mostly what's in question is the left's idea that it has ownership of America. I mean, if, if you, you know, every day here in Alexandria, Virginia, the Washington Post arrives on my doorstep and it's yet one more argument for secession. I mean, they, they just can't accept it, right? They, they've lost and they can't accept it. So they're trying to refight a culture war which increasingly they've lost. And if they ever find out they really have lost, well, you know, then, you know, then uh, they have to look at other options. When you've won or thought you've won that culture war for 50 years, you've never known anything, anything but that, you, you must really experience something like the election of Donald Trump as, as trauma. It can't be absorbed. It can't be. It can't be understood in any rational fashion. All you do is end up saying, "Resist, resist." That, that's not a rational response. 
there's a difference, a basic difference between left and right in this respect. Um, on the right, you might just define yourself in a variety of ways as a member of your city, importantly, as a member of your religion, as a member of your country. Um, for the left, it's a matter of identity, identifying themselves more than anything else as woke progressives. Okay. Uh, I think that describes most of the people on the left, actually. Um, so if that's who you are, that's your religion. And if somebody starts to attack your religion, your most basic beliefs, right, then you want a way out. And I, I try to explain how that could happen. In this process, I think a, a, an interesting cohort are, are, the, are the moderate liberals. You say early in the book, the extremism has gone mainstream. And the oracles of respectable liberalism now embrace the vilest of left-wing extremists. Frank, how, how, did, how did liberalism get so captive to the left in the last five, five years? Well, I, I think they've, um, they identify their core beliefs, their core understanding of who they are, what makes them who they are is their political beliefs and they can't tolerate dissent. So it's, it's, this is like the wars of religion of France in the 16th century. It's just, uh, you know, your, 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 your identity as a person is threatened if people don't agree with you. And we thought we, you know, they thought they owned it. Right. Um, you know, on, on a dime, they turn from same sex marriages to, transgender bathrooms and now basically every day in the washington post there's a there's something about a new heroic transgender person and you know it's of course it's it's not about expressing love and support for such people it's it's nothing more than a thumb in the eye of the people they despise so they've invested in hatreds to such an extent that i don't think they can pull themselves out i mean what they'd have to do if Trump were reelected is to say, well, you know, maybe we weren't all right after all, right? And, you know, and, and maybe we should suck it up. I mean, after all, the conservatives sucked it up in 2008 when Obama was elected, but sucking it up is not something left-wingers do. I mean, it's just, you know, they, 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 it's not part of their makeup. I mean, that whatever it was, that stoic gene, you know, wasn't there to begin with. Right. Um, you know, the basic institutions of our country, uh, you know, that elections matter, that Donald Trump was elected in 2016. If you don't accept that, you're not playing by the, you know, the rules of the game uh, any more than South Carolinians were in 1861. So, you know, at, at that point, you start asking yourself, you know, how do we do it? And as for those, you know, those oracles of respectable left wing opinion, you know, consider how the Washington Post gives puff pieces to the Antifa monsters. I mean, it's it's published four pieces on how these are just basically, you know, passionate kids. You know, not, nothing, nothing, not, nothing to see here. You know, so you 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 mainstreamed the vilest parts of, of the left wing world. They're okay. Why? Because nothing, everything pales in comparison to. The hatred of conservatives, not just Trump, but Trump voters. This has only gotten worse in three years from what I see. I mean, election, it, it was almost in the first month of the, or two of the election of Donald Trump that the hatred was kind of scattered and I mean, people were in shock 
But I think the way the forces of government by the Democrats have been mobilized. Yeah, they 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 briefly, very briefly after November 2016 said, you know, we've missed something here. Maybe we should check it out. And so they sent their reporters to these uh, cold mining areas of Kentucky and you know and, and Tennessee and, and and you know couldn't help but sneer at them of course and then after a while something changed no, you know no longer was it the case that one had to pay attention to the uh, you know the 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 coal miners you know the trump voters to their legitimate complaints but all of a sudden these people were racist and and we didn't have to care about them one bit i mean they deserved everything they got roughly so if they, you know if, if 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 you know if if you're animated by that kind of hatred any possibility of a compromise is gone, you know, and, and moreover, you, you know, we're, we're, you know, politically, we're not all that far from considering a split up. Um, we considered it before when, for example, Thomas Jefferson had the Kentucky resolve of 1798 um, nullify, attempt to nullify federal law. Right. So, you know, uh, that's that's kind of close to what's happening in South in California with their sanctuary state and their sanctuary cities. Is California an example of one of the terms that you coin here of progressive secessionism? Yeah, this time around, I'd say it, it, it won't be 1861. This time around, secession would be politically correct, which is yet one more reason why it would be feasible. Right. It's it, you know. It's one thing if uh, an Alabama tried to secede. It's another thing if a state of Washington or California tried to secede, because, you know, from the perspective of the Washington Post, these are our allies. How, you know, and, and uh, they have right on their side. They don't want to uh, enforce ICE. You know, we, we even had something like a Fort Sumter moment a few years back in in Portland, Oregon. The mayor there is very progressive. The Antifa people. Uh, hold up uh, prevented ICE workers from leaving their building, ICE being the federal immigration officer. So so the federal employees were held hostage by a left-wing mob, and the mayor didn't want the police to intervene. And finally, the uh, feds had to send in U.S. marshals to free the people who were being held hostage in an ICE building. So, you know, that's not Fort Sumter. There, you know, there was no violence. But in terms of a disregard of federal law, you can't go too much further without violence. And, uh, you know, and I don't see violence down there. I see one of the messages here is you can do this sort of thing without violence. Um, I mean, I, I went all through this. I lived in Quebec when it had its secession crisis. And in Quebec, there was some violence in the, in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. But it all stopped instantly when the secessionists, the separatists, thought, hey, we can do this politically. So, you know, once the political avenue is open, the need for violence in their mind disappears. I mean, F- Frank, if California decided, if the legislature said, we, we are declaring our, our independence, how much of the country would say, so long? Yeah, don't. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, is what Texas would say. Um, 
See, that's the other thing. And and by the way, there's something else going on here, which is maybe, you know, maybe our country is just too darn big. That, that this is I was going to get to that when you when you talk about the the problems are may not be all political or ideological, but simply a question of size. But let, let's let's wait. Let's wait on that for, for a few minutes. I wanted to get to a few more things earlier in the book. Right? So what is the, you have another term called progressive nationalism that th- those mo- most people would say those terms don't go together. What is progressive nationalism? Well, um, let's go back to ask how nationalists would feel about this in general. And the answer is, um, gee, I don't know. I mean, to be a nationalist, it seems to me that what you have to do is revere the culture of your country. Uh, You have to have a fellow feeling for all Americans. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much of that fellow feeling today. It's, I think you should be taking pride in American culture, but you know, if our culture includes a drag queen story hour, a lot of uh, conservatives would opt out of that one. Taking pride in our history and heritage, that would exclude the cancel culture left. Subscribing to the political ideals of the founders, that would exclude both woke progressives and the anti-liberals on the right who say, no, no, no. I mean, you know, the Declaration of Independence was a mistake. Um and then there's a the sense of glory and belonging to the strongest nation on earth, which I guess connects with this question of what's the right size for a country. Um, you know, um, one of the things that goes into pride in America is the fact that we're so darn strong. And that has to do with the fact that we spend more on our military than the next 21 countries put together. And, um, you know, so we glory in that, but the glory has a price tag in terms of human lives and in terms of money spent on, on a military budget. So the things that go into nationalism include things which are both conservative and progressive, but, but they also divide people. I mean, you know, what conservatives take pride in is not what liberals might take pride in. And, uh, you know, in, in the end, it seems to me that argues for a way out, as I say, uh, which which would be examining how we can go our separate ways. I mean, we're, we're, we could be quite close to that. Nobody sees this thing coming. You know, I mean, like, you know, I was in Quebec, no, you know, 1960s, nobody but a few kooks thought about this. Ten years, you know, and, and magazines were saying, you know, this politician is talking about it. Should he be charged with sedition? And then all of a sudden it was upon us. Right. I mean, the Czech breakup, Czechoslovakia breakup, same thing. I just it just, you know, it crystallizes at a moment. And the moment comes when people realize, yeah, we can do it and it's not going to be a war. And that's that was my kind of how to guide. And if the problem is not one of politics, but it's just that America is just too darn big, the bigness can't be solved by forms of political compromise because the, the, well, why don't you tell us what, what are the pro what makes the bigness of America such a cause of tension? If it, if it is a cause of tension, what, 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 what tensions, how, how does that happen? Um, that, this is a debate that goes back to the framers debate in Philadelphia in 1787 yeah, the the, the ultra nationalists who ended up losing mostly people like Madison thought 
bigness is good, right? You're big, you have a strong national defense, and uh, we can cure any problems. And then the people who ended up winning all the tricks, um, the federal, the people like Roger Sherman said, no, 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 bigness is badness, and we want more power to the states. So the, the debate then was about dividing power between the federal government and the states. You like bigness, you like a strong federal government, you like smallness, you like powerful states. And in 1787, it was the smallness side that won the debate. But since then, we become a country dominated by Washington. Okay. And, you know, and, and, and that raises the question of the, you know, that asks us to rethink what's the best size of a government. So, all right. So who would like a smaller country? I mean, certainly the libertarians, you know, they'd object to an overlarge federal government. They'd also include people like perhaps Philip Hamburger or, or people like him who object to the administrative state. You know, and the administrative state is really the federal rules of civil procedure and regulators in Washington. And then you have people like Peter Schweitzer who object to a culture of corruption, and that's really a federal swamp located on K Street in Washington. Right. Um, so, you know, those are the things that go into the optimal size. You know, if, if you're. The, the argument for smallness was the smaller the country, the closer the politicians are to the electors and the closer the electors are to the politicians. So the electors will know more about the politicians and the, uh, the officials, the elected officials will know more about what people want. Near the end of the book, you write the big justification for secession. Quote, secession would likely result in a government that is more representative more attuned to the wishes of the constituents, period. Yeah, and, and here's, uh, you know, I, I can hear people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about civil rights? And, you know, my argument is, well, you know, this time around, it would, it's, we're not the same people we were in 1861. So things have happened since then. And one of them is the civil rights revolution, right? And, and the civil rights revolution has recently been pilloried by Christopher Caldwell, who objected to the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. I think the 1964 Civil Rights Bill was just fine. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to revisit that. I don't like everything that happened afterwards necessarily, but you know, we've accepted the message of equality implicit in the Civil Rights Bill, and maybe that bill, maybe the legislation helped change our attitudes. That's the argument for it. But you know, it's a, it's a very paternalistic sort of argument about uh, changing people's preference by legislation. So listen, uh, you know, if the civil rights revolution has been accepted in every state, we're not going to find a Southern state try to, you know, bring back Jim Crow or anything like that. That's, that's, you know, that's not to be feared. Well, in in Southern states, uh, Frank, local governments, municipalities are, are dominated by, by African Americans, right? In in many many cities, so we're not, we're not going back. Uh, come on, there, no. There was a great migration northward northward of of African Americans in the 30s and 40s to jobs in the north, and and then there was a reverse migration back. Um, so you know there are flourishing African American communities throughout the country, and particularly in the south. Yeah. Well, now, well, well, well Frank. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the other problems of bigness, but a quick question: uh, What if how how does a secessionist on these grounds respond to the argument? Look, 
if we divide up, we're going to be no longer act as a, as a superpower. China is going to eat us alive. Well, you know, that brings us back to, uh, that's, a, that's a kind of neocon argument. And I recall being at the, an AEI banquet in 2003 when Charles Krauthammer said, you know, look at us. You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we destroyed a unipolar world with more clout, more power than anything, anyone, any country ever exercised before. More than Napoleon, more than the British. We can fight two wars simultaneously against enemies on different continents and, and defeat both. And he prided in that, right? That's 2003. Well, 2006, the voters told us that maybe we don't, you know, maybe we've had enough of foreign wars. And so Congress flipped. And we had the same kind of message coming out of 2016. I mean, let's have a foreign policy more rooted in what the real interests of Americans are. But, you know, that, I think for Trump voters, that might conflict a bit with the MAGA message, make America great again. And, you know, and greatness involves possibly exactly the same kind of, what, imperialist ambition that Charles Krauthammer described at the AEI ball. Uh, American Enterprise Institute ball. I mean, you, you know, uh, maybe we have to take make choices here. Right? 2016 was supposed to be about that. 2016, I thought, was supposed to make us recall George Washington's farewell address in which he said, you know, look at us here. Um, we're in America. Who's going to invade us? You know, we're not in the middle of Europe. They have wars all the time. Let's have friendly relations with everybody, but no entangling alliances with anybody. So, you know, would we, as a smaller country, still be able to resist the Chinese? I, you know, you know, at, at that point, the support of other countries becomes more important, certainly. Uh, if we spent no more in our military than the next 11 countries put together. Would that be so small? And then you have, you know, th then consider the kind of message that California voters would look at if they had to think about the possibility of secession. You know, so who, if California seceded, like, who's going to invade California? <laughs> right. Now, you do talk about the possibility of a secession light, L-I-T-E. What would secession light look like? Well, the first thing to realize is, is James Buchanan was right. No country has the right of secession, um, in part because of our, our connections, our interdependencies. So let's say there was a secession vote in California backed up by an act of independence by the California legislature. That would be why, by way of beginning a discussion, not ending it, because the votes of you know, Americans in other states count, too. So we'd have to look at, for example, what do we do about the U.S. fleet in San Diego? Um, indeed, what do we do about the state of California? I mean, if San Diego County or even Orange County were given a choice between belonging to this new state, uh, being in the same state as L.A. versus leaving California, I think they'd leave California. So, you know, all kinds of breakups might be in the cards. And then most importantly, you have the question of um, how do you resolve the division of the public debt? So you can't just leave and say, oh, we don't owe that anymore, right? Which, by the way, America did in 1776 
And, and incidentally, if secession is per se bad, gee, what do you think about 1776? Because that was a form of secession as well. So, you know, that would begin a conversation. It would inevitably end up in the Supreme Court. And, you know, the Supreme Court at that point would, I think, hesitate before giving a president the right to send in troops. You know, um, at the 1787 convention, Madison initially suggested that the central government be given the power to invade recalcitrant states that weren't paying their way. And then he said, wait a minute, that's horrible. You know, we can't have one set of Americans invading another. But but yet when my Alexandria was invaded, it was federal troops that, that, that arrived on our doorstep. So, um, you know, you don't want to put a loaded pistol in the hands of one person. You know, l- l- last question. If some form of political separation isn't worked out. I mean, you, you say small forms are happening now, say with the sanctuary cities uh, issue. But if if Trump is reelected, you don't see any anything getting better in terms of the, the, the internal tensions. No, the tensions, I think, would simply be exacerbated and people would start looking for a way out. And what I recommend at the end short of actual breakup would be indeed that which the Quebec separatists proposed, a form of continued association, which I called home rule. It's, it's what the Brits offered the Irish in the 1880s, right? With local self-government. It's what the Brits offered Americans in 1778, which would be a kind of super federalism. So, you know, our, our, one of the reasons for our problems has been the expansion of federal power over the states so that uh, even bike lanes in Alexandria are dictated by Washington. So, you know, removing those kinds of federal interference with local decisions would go a long way towards curing it. And, you know, and remaining, you know, part of a united country in part, but one with a lot, with, with a greater form of federalism than we see today. Yeah. The book is American... Secession is with Encounter Books. Frank Buckley, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.